invite you to turn in your Bibles to the epistle of James. We'll be reading James 1. I think the bulletin listed all of the verses, uh, chapter, verse uh, 2 through 18. I will be focusing and just reading James 1, verses 2 through 4, and then we'll skip down verses 12 to 18, which will be the, the focus of our text. And since it's on the screen and it would be confusing for you, I'm going to read the whole text, which will be good for context. This is God's word that he wrote for us and for our good. Let's pay our careful attention to it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and, the with, and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's ask for God's blessing now on his word. Now, Father, we ask that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open up uh, the soil of our hearts uh, to receive this word appropriately, Lord, uh, to come under it and to see most especially the glory and the transforming effect of Jesus in all of his uh, wonder and splendor and love for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Christian life can sometimes feel like being enrolled in a school that you wake up one morning and did not even know that you had been uh, enrolled in. You can uh, have the phone call ring or the email ding in your inbox and bring news that you are so surprised by you had no clue was coming. And maybe it's not the suffering of the trial that happens uh, momentarily, the thing that strikes you and then passes, but it's the thing that stays, that you pray and you pray and you pray and ask God, why are you sending me through this? And it doesn't seem to change, and God doesn't immediately relieve you from the trial. Uh, Martin Luther said about our sufferings and trials, suffering is the school 
in which God chastens and teaches us to trust in Him. So our faith may not always stay in our ears and hover over our lips, but may have its true dwelling place deep in our hearts. How do you read your sufferings, your trials that you walk through? How do you interpret them? What did you expect when you became a Christian? And how is God working His purposes in the midst of our trials? I had a very distinct memory a few weeks ago when a visiting uh, pastor was preaching on how anxiety led David to come toward the Lord and not to run away from Him. And I remember thinking to myself as I was listening to the sermon, uh, just that I completely had forgotten that truth. Uh, thinking to myself, Lord, when is this going to get easier? Uh, when will trials ease up? When was there a break for us in the Christian life? And maybe you've had this thought as well. I need space. I need some time that's predictable and comfortable and easy, and then I'll be able to grow as a Christian. And James wants us this morning to realize it's not in the break times. It's not in the times of uh, seeming prosperity and comfort when God is bringing us into his school of grace, but it's in the hard times. It's in the trials when we are actually enabled to rejoice and know God is doing his best work in those times. I was forgetting very basic New Testament teaching that we'll be considering this morning. And according to James, he confirms it, that when we lack joy, we have misunderstood, we have not seen God's good hand in our sufferings and trials. And I want us to see under three headings then this reality, the why of trials, what is God's goal or purpose in trials, the source of trials, secondly, when trials are, are brought on by our own temptations, as we will see in our sins. And then third, knowing the good heart of God in the midst of our sufferings. So the why of trials, what are the goal or end? What is God doing in our trials? Second, the source, where they come from, uh, where our sinful temptation comes from. And then third, knowing the heart of God through our sufferings. So first, then, the, the goal or end, the purpose of our trials. Notice this is the very first thing that James wants to tell us as Christians in his epistle. Dear brothers, as after he has greeted the, these Christians uh, spread out in the dispersion, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Sinclair Ferguson, in his excellent little commentary, says he doesn't tell us that our trials are joy, that our sufferings are something that are enjoyable, that would be a dark kind of cruelty to tell us that the trial itself is something enjoyable. But we are to count or to reckon our trials as something that will uh, produce something in us. And therefore, we can rejoice in the midst of them. Well, what is the texture? What's the specific thing that the people who received this letter had to face. What are the trials? Let's get more particular. What were they actually facing? Well, in chapter 2, we see that some were on the receiving end of very painful partiality. There were wealthy and there were poor, and they knew very clearly their place because when they came into a worship service, they were told, you sit here and you sit over there, and we're not going to treat you equally. Or another trial some were feeling the destructive effects of the tongue, as James explains very, very 
helpfully in chapter 3, the destructive, massive uh, spreading effect of how a little spark can burn down a whole forest, if you remember James chapter 3. Or some were being overcome by long-term conflict and quarrels. Chapter 4, what causes fights? What causes quarrels? Is it not your desires that war within you? Uh, this is something that uh, for me is quite uh, difficult in terms of the kinds of trials that God sends us into. I love peace and when things seem to be moving well, and it's quite difficult when God calls us into a sustained and long conflict. And yet in the midst of these particular things, James can say to you and say to me this morning, count it all joy when you meet various trials. But why? What is the goal? What is the end? Notice what he says, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness. Let, it, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and lacking nothing. Well, what is this steadfastness? I'll define it like this. Steadfastness is that learned ability to hold up for a long time under duress. Steadfastness is the learned ability to hold up for a long time under duress. If you have watched uh, the new Pixar Encanto movie, you know one of the sisters has the uh, great difficulty of having to hold up under many, many physical weights. She has a remarkable ability to bear up under extreme amounts of pressure. She sings, pressure like a grip, 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 and it won't let go. Pressure like a tick, 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 and it's ready to blow. And everyone says about her, well, give it to your sister. Your sister is stronger. See if she can hang on a little longer. And it's about of her identity. Who am I if I can't carry it all? And we can feel that way sometimes, that the pressure that's weighing on us heavily is ultimately going to destroy us. But God says, no, the trials that I send into your life sometimes slow and over a long period of time, will not ultimately destroy you as a Christian. And I want to note here and pause and say, if you are uh, holed up and facing your own pressures uh, individually, if you're like that sister in Encanto and you're just facing it totally alone and it's building up and you're totally isolated, please look for help. Um, go to someone that, that you trust. Uh, come to a pastor or an elder or a deacon or a sister in Christ, and talk about the pressures that you feel. Ask for prayer. We're not called to face pressure alone. But this is one of the basic Christian aspects of our experience. Here are some of the passages that demonstrate this is not an outlier text in the New Testament. This is not an exception or a rare thing. Notice all the times when the New Testament speaks about our trials leading to our steadfastness. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 6. This is Paul speaking to the church that he loved so much in Corinth. If we're distressed, it's for your comfort and salvation. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Or 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4, describing the sufferings of apostles. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere 
love. This was an ordinary aspect for Paul of his life as a Christian. And the Lord calls us, again, not to look for pockets of comfort or spaces where we can grow when it doesn't seem like we're under duress, but to be able to count it joy in the midst of our trials, knowing that God is working steadfastness in us. Or we could consider Paul's famous words in Romans chapter 5. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Uh, Sometimes we wish that God would give us steadfastness just zapped and momentarily and instantaneously. I would love to be zapped with endurance and steadfastness for it just to come all at once. But God says, no, the way that he will build endurance and steadfastness in us is through a long and slow obedience over time, bearing up, clinging to him in the midst of trials. Think about the Christian you respect most. Think about the woman or man that you taught you when you were maybe in high school or younger. Didn't they face remarkable, dark, and painful circumstances? And didn't they say about those times, the Lord worked in these moments? He spoke to me not in the the easy, comfortable moments of my life, but he drew me close to him in the midst of my trials and my afflictions. This is the way that God has chosen to train us, the school of our affliction and our trials. And so to summarize here under the first point, count your trials as joy because you know they are producing steadfastness and ultimately God is working perfection in us through them. And that's what James says. Notice verse 12, a kind of summarizing statement. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That's where you're headed as a Christian. There's a point to all of this, this hanging on, this staying in the affliction and counting it all joy. You're headed somewhere. There's a moment when God will crown you with the crown of life. The Apostle John in Revelation 2 says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So be able to count it all joy because you know where your trials are taking you. They're taking you towards steadfastness and ultimately perfection and then glory. But what about second here, and this is an interesting turn in the book of James, when the source of temptation is us, when the trial and the thing that comes on us uh, is because of our sinful hearts. How should we respond to that? Well, as Reformed Christians, we have a very robust view of God's sovereignty. We know everything in life. There's not one tiny moment in our life that's not carefully planned and orchestrated and then sent into our life by God as our Father. We say in our confession, chapter 5, section 4, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far demonstrate themselves in his providence that it extends even to the first fall and other sins of angels and men. Even our sin is, is providentially overseen by God. But we have to also say, yet sinfulness proceeds only from proceeds only from the creature and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of it. James has to tell us when we're tempted with sin, 
We can't sneak out of that temptation by saying, God is the one who's doing this to me. To put it very simply, we can't use providence to say, God, this is your fault that I feel this sinful temptation. And this strategy is as old as we are as human beings. You remember in the garden, God had lovingly created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden and told them all the trees are for you to enjoy except for one. And Adam and Eve fixate and they listen to the voice of Satan and they take the fruit and they eat it. You remember when they're confronted, the Lord says, have you eaten the fruit which I commanded you not to eat? And the response from Adam is, well, the woman that you made gave it to me. You're the one who's to blame for our fall. And James tells us we can't take that move when we're being tempted. When we desire sin, we can't say, God, you're to blame for what is happening. Verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. And how do we know that that's absolutely true? Because of God's character, he can't be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So James explains to us our sinful desires as being that which brings us and causes us to fall into temptation. And this is very helpful for us as Christians because, again, we need the Bible to clarify our desires and our experience. Uh, We don't naturally, in the same way that we don't naturally rejoice and have joy in the midst of trials, we have to have the Bible interpret it for us. We also don't naturally see our sin in the destructive way that the Bible demonstrates it. Verse 14 says, Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. The reason that God has to say to you and to me this morning, dear brother, dear sister, my child, my son and daughter, your sin is dangerous for you and it is destructive is because naturally sin seems so sweet. It seems so uh, desirable. Imagine what David experienced when he was up on the top of his uh, palace and saw this beautiful woman bathing. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world for him to design a plan by which he would pursue her His love general, he would betray on the front lines and kill him. And yet it brought forth death, both Uriah and then this young son who's conceived by Bathsheba are brought forth um, to die. See, desire is the destructive source of our sinful falls. And James wants you to carefully look at your heart as certain desires are cropping up and you're pursuing them and you're making plans to see how you can accomplish the satisfaction of your sinful desires. James wants to tell us, beware when that's happening. Watch out. Be careful. Book of Proverbs tells us that stolen water is sweet and yet it ends in destruction and in death. And James tells us in those moments, we can't point the finger at God and say, you put me in that place. You put me in that position where I could fall. Our own desires are the reason for our destruction. Well, why would we turn then to 
God and turn away from our sin? Why in repentance would we turn toward our Father, our, our uh, Father who is trustworthy? Well, this is what I want us to see third. After we've considered the nature of our sin and its deception, there's another thing that James wants then to drive home as we come to a conclusion. And this is that we must know the good nature of our Father. When we walk through trials, we have to know the good and faithful heart of our Father toward us. Notice verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James doesn't want to leave us in the darkness of the depravity of our own hearts. He wants to point us to the one who we should run to when we're in those moments of temptation. He wants to point us up toward the Father from whom all good gifts come. Notice some of the contrasts that have been uh, laid out in this epistle. Sin is like a baby that's conceived and brings forth death ultimately. But in verse 18, we are ones who have been begotten by the Father, by the word of truth. Our own sins are the source of our destruction, but everything good and everything that is perfect and acceptable comes from our Father. And it was His eternal plan to set his love on you and then to bring you into this new creation, to beget regeneration in you, that you would be, it says, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And as we close, I want to ask the question, well, how did all of this happen? How did God beget us? How did he turn us into this new creation? How are we born again into the living hope that we've been talking about in the midst of our trials. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. By the word of truth, he brought us forth. Well, what is that word of truth? The word of truth that James is talking about that has the power to take people dead in their trespasses and sins, those who were children of wrath anticipating God's judgment in the future, The word of truth is the gospel that has been proclaimed to us that has the power to save us. What was the best gift? If every good and perfect gift comes down from above, what is the best gift that the Father could give us? Well, the eternal Son who came into the world as the light of the world in whom there was no darkness at all, who had no uh, distraction towards sin, whose heart was never duplicitous or deceptive, set his face toward a cross. And because of the joy set before him, he faced what we deserved. God had set his love on miserable sinners, and he pursued those until he would have them. And the way that he did that as our father is he gave his son, his only son, whom he loved. And Jesus, as he comes to the culmination of his ministry, in the book of John, he says, this is the moment when I will be glorified, when I will be lifted up for all people to see. Where is Jesus' 
crown of glory. Where is the crown of eternal life for the spotless Son of God? See, Jesus bears a crown of thorns for us so that on the last day, the Father from whom every good gift comes can hand out to you the crown of glory. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. See, the Father did not desire that we should die in our sins, but he sends the most loved Son, the righteous captain of God's armies, dressed in a shameful robe, mocked and beaten, so that we who have given into our cravings, who have forgotten the purpose of God in our trials, could be welcomed and received and loved and remember without being deceived that every good and perfect gift is from above. So what motivates you then at 3 p.m. this Wednesday afternoon when the news again breaks and you're wondering, why, God, why do you send me through these trials? What motivates you to rejoice? God is working steadfastness in you, and he says, let it have its full effect. And the way you can trust me in the midst of every moment of your affliction, the way you know you can trust me, is I have given the best gift, the son that I loved more than all, for an undeserving child and daughter so that you can be welcomed into my presence eternally and find rest and peace in him. And so we'll sing as we close, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. See, you need to know the character of your father in those moments so that you can look into the face of trial and affliction and say, God, I know you, I trust you. I will walk with you in the midst of this and you will turn me into this person fashioned in the image of your son and enjoy glory with you forever. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, our trials are not enjoyable in and of themselves. They are difficult uh, afflictions that you call us, uh, Lord, to have steadfastness have its full effect, Lord, that we would be perfect and not lacking anything. And Lord, would you please remind us of the sweet comfort of the gospel, Lord, that though we do sometimes even accuse you, Lord, for what we're going through in our temptation, you have not treated us in kind. You have not um, dropped the hammer of justice that we deserved. You have given Christ, crowned him with thorns, and one day, Lord, in all the splendor of his glory, we will see him as he is, and we will be like him, Lord. And all of the, the disorientation of this life, Lord, will make sense finally in glory. Help us to look forward to that day and live, Lord, in the confidence of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond to God's word by singing, When Peace Like a River.
dear people of God, receive his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you his peace. Amen.